All right. Well, good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you guys for joining us for Daniel. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 2 in your Old Testament, Daniel chapter 2. And before we uh, jump in, Jerry Edgar just texted me because uh, a few of us are, uh, fu- are going to be at the funeral this afternoon right now, really, uh, for Alan's father. And so Jerry just informed me that Alan is going to be speaking at the funeral, which I did not know. And so uh, Jerry requests that we pray for Alan. He'll be speaking in the next hour, probably even while we're in this room. So uh, just praying that he's able to uh, honor his father well, which I know he will, and, and present the gospel and that people would be encouraged uh, by what he has to say. So I'm going to pray for that and also for our time together in Daniel 2, 1 through 23. So let's pray together. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for, uh, for Alan. Thank you for his dad and a life of faithfulness that he lived, uh, a love for you uh, that he exhibited, and a godly life. And uh, Lord, we are thankful uh, to be able to say that he is with you, that he is free from cancer, that he's free from pain and all kinds of other issues that he had in these last couple of years of his life. And Lord, I pray for Alan uh, in these coming moments that you would strengthen him, that you would fill him with your spirit, that you would allow him to honor his father well and to have the right words to say. And I do pray that he would be able to present the hope of the gospel that his father is enjoying and benefiting from so greatly at this very moment and that anybody uh, can also participate in through faith in the risen Jesus. And so, God, I pray that you'd be with him uh, in these coming minutes. I also pray for this time as we are in Daniel 2 and we're looking at uh, Nebuchadnezzar and and Daniel and Daniel's God, the one true God. Uh, God, I pray that we would learn lessons from this very ancient story that are applicable to our lives today. I pray we would be encouraged, uh, also um, warned against sin and idolatry. And I pray we would be encouraged to run into your arms as the only a God who truly exists and the only God who can truly save and transform our life. So I pray you'd guide this time for your glory and for our good. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are going to be looking at Daniel 2, and it's a long chapter, so we are going to stop at the end of verse 23. So really, the interpretation of the famous dream will come, Lord willing, next Sunday. But today, we're going to be really looking at three parts. So again, the first part, which is the the first uh, number of verses, we're going to be looking at really uh, looking at Nebuchadnezzar himself, then Daniel in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar, and then Daniel's praise of the one true God. And I'll be honest with you, the first time you read through this text, especially when you have to stop before you get to the dream, which is kind of where everything's going, it can be hard to go, okay, what do we do with this? How do we apply this today? But as you spend time working on it, you realize, as Paul said, all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and so there is much to profit from, even in the opening parts of this chapter. And so uh, let's begin uh, reading together. Uh, Papa Fred, can you read the first 13 verses of Daniel chapter 2? Yes, sir. 13. Let me find where 13 is. Okay. Um. In the sight, the word of the Lord, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king, and the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. 
If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I will show you, uh, I shall show that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The things that the king asks are difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. And the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Thank you, Papa Fred. Um, as we jump into this chapter, Nebuchadnezzar, you know, this guy is as successful as far as the world goes as anyone in the world. Uh, he has just conquered Assyria, which is an astonishing feat. He's now the, the leader of the world. He's king of kings in the way he would have thought of himself and lord of lords. And he has more money, more power, more riches than you can imagine. People speculate based on dating that he was maybe about 30 years old around this time. It's hard to know that for sure, but he was maybe around 30 years old. He still has decades to go in front of him as leader of Babylon. One of the wonders of the ancient world, the, the hanging gardens in Babylon, he's going to be building and this incredible wall around this massive city. You cannot get more secure, more powerful, and more influential uh, than he is. And yet his inner life, do you see the contrast? Is greatly troubled by seemingly some small things. So why don't we jump in here? What, what are some of the things that are happening in his life? Oh, I'm to start. <laughs> Sorry, Fred. Well, for one thing, you know, what, are they, what was the old saying that absolute power corrupts absolute, and, and corrupts absolutely? Um, he was young. Uh, his father, Nabopolassar, actually in, in a um, coalition with the Medes had conquered Syria. Uh, now, Nebuchadnezzar, of course, had... had uh, one had beaten the Egyptians at the Battle of Karamash and, and, and also Jerusalem and had taken Daniel and his friends into captivity. So uh, while young, he was successful on the battlefield. But he also was aware of, uh, at that time, the great civilization of Egypt, uh, of Assyria, uh, and now Babylonia. And, and, you know, I don't, that's got to breed some insecurity because he hadn't been on the throne that long mm -hmm. uh, when he assumes this power. Uh, I don't know if there was a, a training ground for kings or whether his, his father, Nabopolassar, you know, educated him in the art of warfare and battle. Typically, that would be the way it would happen. But I think it just breeds insecurity. I mean, he, he knew that in himself that, that probably he didn't have what it took. Now, they had... 
Babylon then was one of the um, most glorious cities on the planet. John Lennox says they had a thousand temples. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's a bunch. And they had a lot of gods and they had a god for everything. And um, so uh, Nebuchadnezzar was relying on idolatry and idols don't do much for you. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sense when you're relying on idols, whether it be um, one of their idols or one of the more modern day idols, that they can't do much for you. They can't provide for you. They can't win victories for you. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is about to, to see that happen. Well, I think, too, um, you know, keep in mind, like you said, he's, he's new in his reign, like he'd been successful militarily, but it's almost like he's still getting things shored up at home. And so he's going to be jumpy. He's going to be, um, like you said, insecure. He's going to be wary of threats. And, you know, being who he was, you know, Mark, you said Daniel's going to call him king of kings. You know, he is the most powerful man in the world, but he, he realizes there are elements to life that are outside of his control. And so a dream comes and completely just undoes him. I mean, it shows, I think, one, the humanity of even someone this great. Um, and, and I'm not saying great like in terms of a, like a good quality, but just in terms of accomplishments and stuff like that. Even that the most powerful people are still human. Um, and we see that. And they try not to show it sometimes. Uh, but remember that. They're human. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is a human being. And we're seeing where he's fearful at. We're seeing where his insecurity is. We're seeing where, where he doesn't have confidence. Um, and, you know, you have to understand behind this, you know, God is the one who is sending this dream. God is the one who's doing this. And keep in mind, too, I mean, I know this is a, it's a ways off, but God has a purpose for Nebuchadnezzar to teach him to, to, to be humble before him. Like, God has a plan where he's going he's gonna to work on Nebuchadnezzar for a number of years. Um, and so God has a reason why he is unsettling this powerful person. And I think we could say, no matter where we are, whether we have his power or not, when things come that are unsettling, we have to trust God's behind that in some way. There's something he wants us to learn. There's something he wants to show us about ourselves, um, about our own insufficiency, not just our insecurity, but our insufficiency um, and, and how we need to turn to him. Um, again, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't quite turn to the Lord yet. I think he does in chapter four. He hasn't done it yet, but God is at work um, even in this seeming, this, this, this guy who has seemingly has no, no needs, fears, you know, externally speaking, but in his heart of hearts, he knows everything's not as well as it seems. Yeah, no, just to, to tack on to that, uh, I think Alistair Begg just said that Nebuchadnezzar may be the mightiest of rulers, but he's reduced to a trembling insomniac by his dream. It's just one dream. I mean, this guy had all the power, everything you would think, prestige and everything. One dream, and I think one guy said he was, he was shaking his boots as he's unbuttoning his pajamas, like in the morning. It's this one little dream, but it's because he's living for the horizontal plane, I think is what Ferguson was saying. Everything was, it was horizontal. There was no vertical dimension to his life. So Daniel, he is exiled there, and yet Daniel, we're going to see, remains calm. He trusts God. He's, he's faithful in all this because that vertical dimension is there. He, he has, it's like St. Augustine's quote, our hearts are restless until they find rest in the Lord. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was restless. It didn't matter if he had all this. In one little dream, he, he's, he's erect. But Daniel has this vertical dimension. It reminded me of Psalm 1, which Greg, you preached on a while back, 
It's like a Christian has the root system in place. We have this deep root system. We have the vertical dimension. We, we trust God. We have, we have faith. When, when trials hit, we have the root system. But then the, the wicked are like chaff. It's like one little trial, the chaff just gets blown all over the place. They're, they're, one guy said rootlessness. Nebuchadnezzar, there's no root system at all in place. And you see it. And Liliana and I have friends. I won't get into the details, but they, have, they went through some trials, not Christians. And it's like their whole world is falling apart. It's like insecurity, fears. All these things came in. We were talking about what a opportunity for the gospel to come in and say, you know, there is a hope in Christ that you can give stabilization to your life. And I just thought it's a great opportunity for the gospel because everybody ultimately, no matter how great it may appear outwardly, one little trial may may knock everything off. And uh, what a a great way for us to enter in with with gospel truth, with hope that that we have. Go ahead, Papa. Well, Greg had already said it, but God God will reveal some things through the dream and down the road in Daniel to, to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. But God has already used Nebuchadnezzar. He was, a, uh, he was the object of Judah's judgment. Mm-hmm. That's why he was allowed to take Jerusalem, take Judah captive back, back to uh, um, Babylon. So uh, he's part of God's greater plan. Um, and God warned Judah through all the prophets over and over and over again that, you know, if you don't repent and believe, you're going to go into captivity. You can go back to Deuteronomy and see that. And, and it happened. And he used Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar to do that. He also would later on use Cyrus and the Persians also to bring the captives back 70 years later. And again, Daniel's a player in that. So this is a big picture book. God is a God of history. All these events took place in real time, uh, in real civilization. So this, is, this is, again, going back to, I think, uh, last week, any history book that deals with the major events of history and leaves the God, of, the God and Father of Jesus Christ out is, is infinitely superficial in its treatment of always. history because it's missing the main point of every story every time. It's always getting it wrong fundamentally because it never gets the purpose right. The why behind everything, it, it always gets wrong. But going back to the idea of, of Nebuchadnezzar being insecure, I mean, I, I've mentioned this before and every year in, in Bible classes that I teach with high school students, I show uh, these video clips and some of them are kind of funny, some of them are just kind of interesting. But uh, the three people I'll just mention really fast, Matt Damon, Jim Carrey, and um, Tom, Brady. Tom, Brady, Tom Brady, thank you. And uh, th- those clips are just gold because, of course, none of them are Christians, but what they say in those clips is astonishing. So I just showed it a couple weeks ago, uh, these three clips together, and uh, I will not be able to do Jim Carrey's humor uh, the way that he did it, but he's at uh, some award show, and he comes out to present the awards, and he, he talks about how he's won this award two different times. He says, you know, one day I hope to win it three times, and then he, then he says, because then I would be enough. He said, then I could finally stop this horrible search for what I know will never satisfy me. And he goes on and on, like everyone's laughing, but then they realize that like under the humor, he's not joking. Like he's had, in the 90s, you could not get more famous or more wealthy than Jim Carrey, right? I mean, she had a string of movies that were just number one for, for years. And then uh, he comes out of all that and says, basically, I'm, I'm empty and I'm always looking for the next thing to fulfill me. That sounds a little Nebuchadnezzar-like. Then you got um, uh, Matt Damon who talks about winning an Oscar for best screenplay for, I think it was Good Will Hunting when he was like 28 with Matt Damon, I mean with uh, ben, ben Affleck. Affleck. Yeah. Scott's going to help me with every sentence here because I don't remember the words. So, uh, but they both won Best Screenplay. That's an incredible accomplishment as far as the world goes when you're in your 20s. It's unbelievable. And Matt Damon said in an interview, he said, um, that night I, I went back to my girlfriend's house. So already there's some issues here. Went back to my girlfriend's house. He said she went to bed. And he put the Oscar down on the coffee table in the living room. And he said it was just in the, probably incredibly late at night. He puts the Oscar down. And he said, I felt 
a moment of gratitude, he said, because I realized in that moment that that was never going to be enough for me. That, that, that was, in fact, the, the interviewer asked him, he says, it was, it was not going to be good enough. So, he actually said something like filling my heart or something. It was like almost a biblical reference in a sense, like the God-shaped hole in your heart. He, he referenced that and he said, it, he said it, what, what terrified me was the thought of me not getting that Oscar and living to be into my 80s, always searching for the Academy Award and getting it in my 80s just in time before I die to realize it wasn't good enough. And like, it was almost awkward for the interviewer, like, what do you say now? It's such a heavy, but I, I think he was being completely transparent in that moment. So he achieved the ultimate in 20, at 28, and he said it wasn't enough. He figured that out the same night. And the, the other one, real quick, was Tom Brady. This is after, like, I think his fourth Super Bowl. So this is when he was, like, kind of minor, minor leagues here. Uh, he'd only won about four at this point. But it, you'll never forget, I mean, Kelly was, this was part of Kelly, my wife's journey to faith in Christ. This played a piece in her coming to Christ in her first year of college. But uh, Tom, Tom Brady just said, um, like the interviewer says, okay, like you're married to like, I think it was a supermodel and like you've got this many millions of dollars and you've won the Super Bowl four times. And, like you're world famous. Like it doesn't get better than this. And then he stops and says, yeah, but I, didn't, I didn't know it came with all this baggage. It comes with all this baggage. And he sounds frustrated. And then, he, then uh, he says to the interviewer, now maybe that's all it is. Maybe that's it. Maybe you, just, you, you win the game and that's what, it is what it is. He said, but there's gotta be something more than this. That's what he says. And then the interviewer goes, the 60 minutes guy says, do you know what that is? He says, I would, uh, no, like, can someone tell me, like, what, 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 is the, what is something better than this? You almost want to scream at the TV when you see that. Like, I, I actually, humbly, I know what's better than that. And so, um, similarly, Nebuchadnezzar, at the height of all fame and popularity, he's saying a single dream is wrecking his, he's full of anxiety, full of fear. He's not at peace. He's not secure because his idols can be taken away. And if, the, if what you're living for can be shaken, then you're not secure. No matter how glamorous it looks outwardly, if what you're living for can be shaken, can be taken away, if it can disappear one day, then you are, you are going to be insecure in the most profound way. And there's going to be, what's going to surround that insecurity is going to be what? Incredible fear, anxiety, and when someone gets in the way of your idol, like happens in this story, what emotion do you feel towards them? Rage, fury. You, you, you become, you'll, you'll do whatever you can because... And not to get ahead of ourselves, but Nebuchadnezzar views people in his life, I'm getting this from someone else, but I think this is helpful, he, he views everybody as either an object or an obstacle, which means he either objectifies you, he uses you for his own ends, so if you can help him get what he wants, he loves you, he'll reward you, but it's fake love, or if you get in the way of what he wants, or you can't give him what he wants, like his magicians and sorcerers, if they can't give him what he demands, what? We're tearing you apart, limb from limb. You and your families, we're going to reduce your houses to rubble. I'm going to destroy you because you are now an obstacle to my God, or you are something I can use to get to my God. But you, he's dehumanizing the people around him, and he's simply using them for his own means. And there's a deep insecurity underneath it all. So we move on yes. uh, a little bit. Uh, verse 2, um, so he's troubled, his, he's insecure, uh, sleep left him, um, and so he's going to do what, what he can with the resources he has available. And I think, you know, as we, we consider this next section, remember, the earthly resources will never be enough for true spiritual issues. Um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to find that out because he has the best of the best, all the wise men, as it says, verse 2, he commanded the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, the Chaldeans to be summoned to tell him his dream. So, 
Um, in terms of earthly resources, nobody has more than Nebuchadnezzar does in order to fix his problem. Um, and so he brings them in, as, as we know, you know, says, I've had this dream, I'm troubled. Um, and so you need to tell me this dream. And then they're like, well, tell us what it was. And he's like, I'm not going to do that. You got to tell me what I dream. And they're like, but that's crazy. Nobody can do that, King. And he's like, no, you're just, you know, present for time. Like, come on, uh, tell, tell me what I dream. And they're like, well, you tell us what we'll dream. We'll tell it what you mean. And he's like, no. See, the, typically it's just he'd share the dream. They'd give him an interpretation. But he's going a step beyond that saying, I'm not even going to tell you what the content was. You got to tell me what the content was and then give me the interpretation. Um, and so it's almost like he knows that there's no hope in these guys. Like he, it's almost like he knows that, um, but he's still like putting the pressure on him. Yes, some people speculate that he'd forgotten the dream. I don't think that's the case. I mean, he had to remember at least the basics of the dream to even identify the dream when someone says it back to him. So I don't think he forgot it. I think it's exactly like you're saying, Greg. I think he's testing them. He, he wants to make sure their interpretation is true. So if they can tell him the dream, which is impossible for a human being to do, then the interpretation is going to be reliable. If you can tell me the dream, then I know your interpretation is reliable. I think he's giving them that because he really wants to be sure that what they're think, saying is right. I don't right. think he would have been troubled if he hadn't remembered his right. dream. Mm -hmm. Something about what he dreamed troubled him. Now, I don't know what that was, but he was troubled, insecure. So. Yeah, just again, tying into all this, one, one guy just said, why does the biblical writer want us to hear this? Like, basically, the paganism doesn't have, have anything for you. But he say, this is what he says. He says, he's saying that life is a dead-end street without a God who discloses what the future holds. He is telling exiled Israel that there is no need to be awed by paganism despite its trappings and splendor for it is nothing but empty and dark. Again, it's just like how much we should shine out as lights in this world as Christians. I think a guy like Jerry Edgar, the world would look at him and he, man, he doesn't have anything. He can't even hardly function like that. can't move hardly. But he has such joy because again, he has this relationship with God and how bright he shines. He does shine so brightly compared to somebody else who may have everything outwardly and yet is always troubled. You listen to non-Christians, it's always something in their life that's always troubling the smallest little things. And yet we as Christians can stand up because we have this relationship with God. Again, just well, we're going to see it with Daniel, but oh man, we should just be shining radiant because we have, we know this God and we, we, we've been reconciled to this God and how, how bright we should be shining compared to this world around who desperately needs this ultimately uh, when trials hit. Uh, so yeah, I, it, yeah. Just on that point, just because I was not a Christian yet when this happened, so I, I can relate to this. <clears throat> the first time I ever saw Jerry Edgar, I was in eighth grade. This is around the year 2000. And he, had, he was not yet a teacher at Westminster. I was a student. He was, he was, his brother taught there, but he was not yet a, on the faculty. He came on maybe a year later. So the first time I ever saw him, he spoke in chapel. And I still, I don't remember anything really that he said. He told his story. I don't remember the details. He told the story about all that happened to him when he was 17 and everything. But you know the joy he has. It's not normal, okay? It's not normal. People are not normally like this. So my eighth grade mind was trying to explain him, and I was not yet a believer, and I remember, I, this is what I do remember. After it was over, I had a conversation with a friend of mine, I won't say his name, uh, but he and I talked about it and we actually debated whether or not it was an act that Jerry Edgar was doing or whether or not that was real. Because we could not compute a person who was really like that. So we, we concluded maybe he's faking it or not. Now, now I've known him for 22 years, I'll tell you, he's not faking it, that's the real man. Uh, but at the time, it was so beyond my categories as an unbeliever I could, to me, the, my greatest nightmare would be going through what he went through. I, I could not see how there could be any joy or stability, and he had all that, and I didn't have it, and I was physically healthy. I couldn't put it together. So you're right, it throws you off, and you almost wonder, like, is this, is this real? Is this really, like, well, how, do you, how do you account for the uh, believing life in, in those kinds of circumstances? And, and let me just j j jump to the next point here. L look at verse 10 of Daniel 2. 
the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand for no great uh, and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. So life's ultimate questions cannot be answered by the wisdom of this world. And a passage we won't read right now, but if you want to jot down to look at, 1 Corinthians 1.18 through the end of chapter 2 is all about this, remember? 1 Corinthians 1.18 to chapter 2, God is going to make foolish, what? The wisdom of this world. Why? Because through the folly of the cross, he's going to show the wisdom of God. Through the foolishness of the cross, what looks so silly, a, a crucified, spit-upon Savior who comes back from the dead, what is this, like a fairy tale? What are you talking about? God's going to use the foolishness of the cross to make foolish the wisdom of this world and to show his wisdom in a completely different kind of way. And he says, only by the Spirit can we grasp God's true wisdom. And, and hear this phrase, the gods, no one can tell this to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Scott, do you have any comment on that? Yeah, well, one commenter just said it's not the gods, it's actually the true God is the one that, that needs to come in to, to add that. But here, one guy just said, here we see the uniqueness of the God of the Bible who is both able and willing to reveal his plans and purposes to mankind, which we we'll may get into this later. But to me, it's like the condescension of God to, to come down and, and reveal this future to this wicked king. He does that. I, I was blown away by that. Just the uniqueness of God and God's condescension to do this and to tell the future in this. I mean, in answer to prayer, but I'm getting ahead of it. But to me, that was striking there. Just God's condescension to reveal the future. We need God to reveal the future. He has revealed the future. Well, can we also say like in this... Um the insecurity in terms of like eternity that a false religion gives you. Uh, Christianity, I mean, the God, God of the Bible who reveals himself to us, I mean, we know him. Like, we know him. And we know who he is. We know what he's like. We have his promises. And we're not wringing our hands. If, if we're thinking rightly, we're not wringing our hands. Is he going to change? Is he going to, you know, blow his top at me? Am I going to do something and ruin it all? These pagans have no ultimate security. And you think about other religions as well. I think uh, Muhammad Ali, maybe you remember this, he converted, it was either to the Nation of Islam or Islam One. Mm -hmm. um, and I remember an interview towards uh, later in his life, they're, they're talking about spiritual things and the interviewer's asking him, you know, do you think you're gonna go to heaven when you die? And he's like, well, and I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, I hope so. You know, he's tried to do more good than he's done bad, but he has ultimately no confidence to know for sure if whether or not God's going to accept him or anything like that. And this is just indicative of the fact that every other religion ultimately cannot give you hope. People are hope, you know, vainly wishing that maybe it's true, maybe it'll turn out good in the end. But these guys, they don't have a God they trust in. I mean, they know the gods can do it. They don't know if their gods are going to come to their aid. Um, they, they have no grounds whatsoever uh, for anything. And again, I think that brings the contrast that we're going to look at with Daniel and uh, his three friends. It makes that contrast all the more like to, to stand out because they know God. They, they have that, that security, that foundation that these don't. And the phrase here in verse 11 no one can show this to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Almost every commentator pointed to John 1.14, that Christ, what, took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
I mean, just the, the contrast is even, so even Daniel could not have probably fathomed what was to come in the future with statements like this. Like, what, what God dwells amongst flesh, amongst men, and can answer these questions? There's no God. And Daniel may not even fully understand that one day the very God he's talking to is literally going to take on flesh and dwell in our midst. So God is so humble that he actually becomes one of us one day. He will actually dwell uh, among us. Okay, so can we move to Daniel now? So that Nebuchadnezzar, you have a pretty clear picture of his character. Uh, you can apply that to any human being on the planet. And verse 14 now, we'll get to Daniel. I'll read a few verses. Uh, verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion, just see how different he is, to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from God, from the God of heaven, concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And then we'll, we'll get to the last part in a moment. So right now, that's the reaction of Daniel. And how does this contrast to the character of Nebuchadnezzar? Daniel was confident uh, in appealing uh, to his three friends. Incidentally, it's interesting that they revert back to their Hebrew names here mm -hmm. uh, rather than their given Babylonian names in chapter 1. Uh, you know, he's confident uh, that, that they can appeal and that they have access to God and can uh, make this matter known to God uh, so that it might not be destroyed. I mean, there's a boldness there. And Daniel was known as a prayer. You know, when later on he gets in trouble because he prayed three times a day, and that's when he's uh, committed to the lion's den and all. But, uh, you know, do, do we pray? Do, do, you, do you pray? Do I pray when, when I'm confronted with uh, something like this? Uh, that's the first thing Daniel thought about doing, uh, is to appeal to his friends to intercede for him and them uh, to save them from uh, death. And, and, and I don't know where Daniel was here. Um, he, he obviously didn't know that this edict had gone out, Ariot, that, that, that everyone was going to be killed, but he found out. Because mm -hmm. he, he asked Ariot, why, why the urgency? And, and, and so he does the first, first, first thing. And, and I just wonder again, and I'm thinking about my own self, uh, do I? Is that the first thing I think about when I'm in trouble? is appealing to the God who raises the dead, who's seated at the right hand of the Father, making intercession for us. Wow, that'll preach. I had a, a friend in college um, say something that still sticks with me. Uh, we were talking, I can't remember the specific context, but it was prayer came up and he made the, you know, the comparison so often. We're like, well, I'll pray about it. It's the least I can do. And he was like, Greg, in some circumstances, that's the most you can do. And it's like, why do we undervalue prayer? It's like we have access to the throne of grace. We have access to our heavenly Father. Um, do we really believe, one, that he hears us, two, that he cares, three, that he does answer according to his sovereign purpose, wisdom, and will, and that he's going to work in accordance with that for our good and his glory? I mean, and if we really believe that, then prayer's the first thing we do, not the last thing we do. And I mean, I confess, it's 
Usually we fret about it, we got to gripe about it, we got to go talk to somebody and, you know, express our anxiety and prayers like, well, I'll get to that before I go to bed if I don't fall asleep first. And it's like prayer should be the first thing we go to because that's our, you know, through Jesus, that's our direct line to God. Why, why would we put that like as a secondary back burner thing? I mean, Daniel and his friends here, I mean, this is like a huge example when, when, when any, ever there's a need, Pray. I mean, it's, it's a little awkward sometimes, and I'm not always perfect at this, but sometimes like if I'm talking with somebody, um, you know, and they're sharing something, you know, what's our typical response? Oh, I'll pray about it. Why don't we pray right then? Just pray right there. I mean, especially if we're at church and something comes up. I mean, that's not weird. We shouldn't be weirded out by that. We're, we're the people of God. We're gathered uh, together to worship him and fellowship. If there's an issue coming up in a conversation, say, hey, let's pray about that right now. And, you know, don't feel weird about that. I mean, take, take the example seriously. And just on that point, there, I've mentioned this before in Revelation, the, the bowls of incense or the prayers of the saints. Remember that metaphor, that picture? Well, one of the things I like about this bowls of incense metaphor in Revelation, or this picture in Revelation is this. One of the reasons why we don't pray more is because we've prayed about things and we haven't seen maybe an answer that we wanted, and so it might discourage us from prayer. If we're just being honest, that, that will sometimes happen. This, this idea in Revelation is so encouraging. Now, in the context, it's, it's, it's a different kind of prayer. It's a prayer for God's justice to come, for martyred saints. So it's a little bit of a different maybe than our normal prayer would be. But still, uh, the, the, prayers are, the, the, the prayers of the saints are like collected in these bowls. And the idea is that the prayers build up over time as they're, they're prayed hundreds and thousands of times over a course of years years. And finally, what happens? God says, flip the bowls over and out come the prayers. In other words, I mean, when I think about praying for, say, the salvation of my children or whatever it may be, I, I don't think of it as a one-time thing. You pray for it once and then it's going to happen like magically immediately. I mean, that would be wonderful. But I, I think of it as my prayers are being collected. I mean, no, I, my prayers don't earn anything from God. Don't misunderstand me. But I do think of it as them being collected. Over the course of time, we pray on and on and on faithfully and continually, even when we do not see immediate fruit. And the Lord, one day you pray, is going to say, what? Flip the bowl over. Like now it's time for these prayers to be fulfilled or to be answered. And there's no guarantee. You can't control God. You can't manipulate God. You can't barter or buy from God. You trust his character as a good father and you plead with him before the throne of grace in the name of Christ. And over time, uh, you, you, you invest yourself in those prayers in the long run. Yeah, I would say that there's multiple things to learn here. Uh, oh, just trying to condense it down. But one of them is in chapter one, Daniel is faithful in that, and his friends are faithful in that. One, you, you said, I think, last time that it's almost like that was the most important one, this small act of faithfulness. We're gonna, they were getting smashed into Babylon's mold, but then the food is too much. It's going to be spiritually det detrimental, so we're gonna, not going to eat the food from the king's table. They were faithful there. But then here in chapter two, it's like you're going to die because he, no one can tell this dream. It's like, and yet here again, they're faithful again. It's just this ordinary faithfulness. We should be pursuing this being faithful. But then the way that Daniel responds, he doesn't respond angrily. It just like chapter one. There's no outburst. There's no obnoxiousness. Uh, what did Beg say? He said, you will search in vain through the whole book of Daniel for one of God's people responding aggressively, angrily, or condescendingly to any pagan. I mean, for me, that's challenging. I know, Greg, you said it's not up to us to, you know, change the person. God has to work. It's not going to be our kind answer that's going to change them. God's got to change it, but it doesn't excuse our obnoxiousness in, in the situation. For me, it's like if something's happened, I can just respond sort of aggressively and not the way that Daniel responds, just, just graciously. So there's something there to learn. But then the fact that he, he gathers everyone together to pray, he's calm, he has spiritual wisdom, he gathers everyone to pray. And the, the fact of praying together, uh, the, one guy said this passage underscores the importance of petitionary prayer, especially asking God for wisdom and praying as a group. And another guy said, who could be better to turn to in a time of trial? Who is like the Lord as a helper and deliverer? But thinking about even in times in church history where people have prayed for, for something, 
uh, I, William Carey, I think I've told this before, but he was a missionary in India, and he, one of his kids was wandering away from the faith, and he had written back home to England, and they were having this, I think it was a missions conference, and they had gotten this letter from William Carey, and the, guy got, the pastor got up and he read the letter that one of his kids is wandering from the faith, and the, the guy said it hit the congregation like a thunderbolt, that his son had wandered away, and the whole church at this conference, they pleaded with God for, for the salvation of William Carey's son. I mean, just praying as, as a group. There's power in that. And, and eventually, the, his son was converted. But I, I think of times in North Ave, just getting together with other believers. Sometimes for me, just listening to another Christian in the room, praying for another Christian. And I know they love them, but you can hear the love. Like you can just, it's almost like you can reach out and grab the love of the words in the room as you, as you lift the other person's burden. So I think there's a, it may be an awkwardness too sometimes, but man, the joy of actually doing it together. I mean, some of my favorite times of book club has been listening to people pray for each other. And sometimes when people have prayed for us, it's just, it's an amazing privilege to do it. And we should be doing it more. And Daniel and his friends, that's the thing. He gathers everybody together. We're going to have this prayer session. Oh, so much to learn in this. I mean, we can just read past chapter two so quickly. And this, it's just been so like, wow, there's so much application here. I was thinking of Acts 12 when Peter's in jail and they had just killed the apostle James with the sword. Herod, Herod's on a killing spree. So he finds out he pleased the Jewish leaders by killing James, the, one of the apostles. So now he puts P- Peter, one of the other top three, into the prison. He's going to do the same thing to Peter, no doubt. Remember John Mark's house, the wealthy home in Jerusalem, Mary's home? They're packed in there. I don't know how many people are packed in, but they got a ton of people in there. And it's... It's the middle of the night, and they're praying, and there's a knock at the door. Rhoda goes, the servant girl goes, and she, she hears through the door. It uh, sounds like Peter's voice. Peter's here, so she runs back and goes, guys, the, Peter's here. He, the Lord has let him out somehow. And they go, you're out of your mind. Stop with that. Let's go back to praying for Peter's release, which always struck me as a funny moment in the story. They're like, oh, you're, you're crazy, Rhoda. That's impossible. Lord, please deliver Peter from prayer. <laughs> like, how does that work? Meanwhile, so, Peter's at the door. <laughs> Peter's out there, and he continues knocking. She, they open the door. Peter's like, uh, guys, this is dangerous. Why are you leaving me out here? So Peter comes in, tells them all. They're beside themselves. They cannot believe it. And he, he leaves the city for the sake of his own life. But I mean, imagine having been there that night, because that really happened. Imagine at whatever watch of the night it was, it was, it was not far before sunrise. So that means they were praying through the night, maybe even having people speculate, were there groups that came for a certain number of hours and then other groups? We don't know. But it was, it's the four or five in the morning and they're still praying and they're praying as a group. And the Lord greatly in an amazing way answered, uh, answered their, their prayer there. So it's an encouragement for us to pray in groups. Uh, let's continue here with uh, Daniel's response because this is wonderful. The Lord reveals the dream, verse 19. This is 19 to 23, our last section. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the, king, uh, the king's matter. Just pause here. How often is it that we long for something... The Lord actually gives it to us, and we don't genuinely stop to worship the Lord and thank Him. How easy is it to do that? To kind of, oh, we got it, let's move on. And the story, you probably, you could think of this story, the 10 lepers. Let me just read it real quick. You don't have to turn there in Luke. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was passing along between Samaria and Galilee, and as He entered a village, He was met by 10 lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When Jesus saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then, 
How many? One. One. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, we're not ten cleansed. Where are the nine? Was no one found to return to give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to them, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. But how easy it is for us to receive incredible blessing from the Lord and to not stop and genuinely praise him. The temptation for Daniel would be what? If I was him, get me out of here. Go, where's Ariok? We got to stop this before one of us gets killed. Like, this is life or death is on the line here. And instead, he stops and composes a hymn to the Lord right there. It's poetry. Uh, he, com- he composes this beautiful uh, song of praise to the Lord in that moment. And uh, that, I want more of that in, in my life. There's a lot of things that says that, number one, that God is sovereign. You mentioned providence of God. That's the outworking of the sovereign hand. But clearly, God is sovereign over all of the universe. I think of Colossians 1.16. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things are created through him and for him. So clearly, he raises up kings, he puts down kings. And that's a recurring theme throughout the Bible, particularly the Old Testament and Isaiah. I'll say 21 and 22, it's almost like Daniel's anticipating the rest of his book. Mm-hmm. Like everything he talks about in 21 and 22 is what happens in the book of Daniel. Yes. Um, times and seasons changing, uh, kings being removed, kings being set up. Um, revealing deep and hidden things. I mean, goodness, think about chapter 7. Think about chapter 9 um, and, and later visions that Daniel has that trouble him. Like He's anticipating the rest of what he's going to write about in this prayer. I don't know if that's intentional, uh, but it is interesting. Everything that happens in the rest of the book is what he is praising God for before any of it actually happens. So it's like he's, he's getting the right perspective in this initial uh, crisis, if you will, that's going to shape everything else he writes and his response to it. Yeah, I'll just say this one quick thing, tying in with what you said. Sinclair Ferguson said this. He said, the test of our spirituality does not lie in the fervency of our prayers in times of crisis, but in the wholeheartedness of our worship when God acts in grace. Relief unaccompanied by worship is never an adequate response to the mercies of God. And I, I just think this is where we fail. I mean, you're exactly right. I mean, this is the part was convicting to me. I would race off to Ariok and just save the lives of everybody. This is the answer to, to your dream. Here it is. It's the interpretation. Boom. But he stops and praises God. I just think we should be challenged. I was challenged by this. Like, we need to stop and, and praise God. And one guy was saying, I'm, I'm jumping off this a little bit, but he was saying, according to Westminster Catechism, I think about how we should confess our sins, like, particularly. He said, not just vaguely, just, you know, forgive me for my pride, but actually, like, naming it. But then he said, we should do that with thanksgiving. Like, not just generalize thanksgiving. He said, take time to name, you know, one or two things. I think getting on front and the out, like pushing back against this, begin to cultivate this thanksgiving when God does things, like even a simple thing is somebody encourages you at church, well, take time to give thanks to God for that specific moment where another believer came alongside you and lifted you up. And why can't we just stop and, and give thanks to God for that little word of encouragement and just begin to do this? So when God acts in a big way, we're certainly going to be ready to praise him. But I think cultivating that thanksgiving throughout our lives and starting to name them specifically will help us, I think, cultivate more of a Daniel-like attitude here. You know, Daniel could have, another thing is that he mentions uh, in 23, for you have given me wisdom and might. Uh, wisdom from, from Proverbs comes from the Lord. Daniel was given wisdom in this case, and, and uh, Daniel could have uh, just asked for preservation for the four of them. 
And, but instead, you know, he wanted to intervene for all. He asked that all the uh, Chaldeans and sorcerers and wise men be saved. So, I mean, it, 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 it not only saved his life, but it saved the life of all of Nebuchadnezzar's advisors. So, you know, he showed wisdom and prudence and, you know, he, uh, he wasn't out just for himself. Yes. And today, for just another piece of application, we, we don't look to our dreams for our divine revelation today. It's like Hebrews 1.1, long ago, like in Daniel's time, in many different ways, God spoke to the fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken through his son, the, the final word. And so we seek his will through God's word, his written revelation, and we also seek the wisdom of God through this, that his spirit would open our eyes to the truth that is in it. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. So we, we open God's word, and we ask God to illuminate his word, to show us the true meaning of his word, and we ask for him to allow that to shape us and to change us more into the image of Christ. Greg, any last thoughts before we wrap up? Oh, there's more I want to say. I don't know if I have time to say it. I might bring it up next week. Okay. We'll, All right. we'll, we'll wrap up there. Scott, can you pray for sure. us? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful for this, this book of Daniel written so long ago and yet filled with so much for us to learn and take away from today. So much application that I have been struck by. Uh, thank you for Daniel's example and his friend's example. Thank you for that they let their light shine here in this, in this situation. And uh, what a reminder that... Uh, non-Christians around us, really there, there is no hope for them and the slightest trial will, will knock them off kilter. And so help us to see those opportunities for, for the gospel to reach in with the gospel. And I pray that we would, our light would shine uh, amongst others and they would see our good, good works and give glory to you. Uh, help us to be a different kind of people because we have hope. Uh, our hearts have found rest in Christ and, and may people see it sort of like Jerry, Mark saw and Jerry Edder couldn't explain it. I, I pray that that's how we would be uh, around others. And, and Father, I pray we'd be quick to go to the throne of grace uh, like Daniel and his friends were. And I pray we'd be quick to gather others and, and pray with others. And Father, I pray you'd help us to be more thankful, more uh, grateful, more filled with, with praise when you do answer in our lives. Help us not to race off to the next thing when you've granted our petition, but create in us just deep thanksgiving and deep worship uh, in our lives. And we, we pray for the service upcoming. Uh, pray that you'd be at work through the singing and through the teaching and help us to be built up. And again, we pray for Alan as he's maybe teaching or talking right now about his father. Continue to strengthen him and support him during this difficult trial that he is walking through. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.